We're here to discuss the future of investments in the resource sector. And joining us today are two very distinguished guests that have worked decades in this field and are well-renowned in the both respective professions. Rick Rule, former president of Sprott, who is now director and legendary investor who needs no introduction, is joining us with Amir Adnani, who is CEO of UEC and chairman of Gold Mining. We'll be speaking with both of them regarding their views on the space. Gentlemen, welcome. What a pleasure to have both of you at the same time. I feel like you've hit a jackpot. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you, David. Amir, we spoke recently, you and I, about uranium. It was, um, it was a very enlightening interview about the industry. I'd love to follow up with you on this because viewers have wanted to learn a little bit more about the industry. Rick, you and I have never spoken about uranium. We've talked about gold, the economy, the macroeconomic landscape, um, investments, equities, every, the whole works, but I haven't gotten your thoughts about uranium. How do you feel about the space and what is your, what is your connection with uranium? I've been involved in the uranium industry uh, on and off since the decade of the 1970s through the ups and through the downs. The uh, last bull market that we experienced in uranium, 1989 to 2006, was probably the single most profound speculative event uh, of my life. Uh, I was early into that bull market, in fact, very early, too early, some might say. Uh, but I remember very well uh, that going into that uh, bull market, there were only five remaining uranium juniors in the world. The poorest performer of that group generated a 22 to 1 return in the period uh, 1999 to 2005-2006. So it was, uh, pardon the pun, but an explosive circumstance. Uh, uranium, if you're a contrarian, is probably the best of all materials because it doesn't merely bore people, it terrifies people and angers people. We're back into a circumstance today that's oddly reminiscent, frankly, of 1998-1999. There's been a substantial period uh, since people made a lot of money on uranium. I should caveat that. The last four months have been extraordinarily good in the junior uranium equities. But the sector itself hasn't attracted much attention for a very long time. And people, when they lose the excitement, lose access to the facts. The facts are simply this, that irrespective of whether you like uranium or don't like uranium, and by the way, you should, uh, it's an important part of the ascent of man. It's an important part of electric, electrical generation. Important enough that if you're American, you need to know that uranium generates about 19% of total electricity consumption and 15% of baseload generation, which means over five or six years, it can't be replaced by any other power source which means, again, that either the price of uranium goes up to the global clearing cost, the total cost of producing uranium, including cost of capital, or there's not enough electricity for everybody and the lights go out. My suspicion is that that means that the price goes up rather than the lights go out. Uh, people who believe that five or six years from now, when they enter the room and flip the switch, that the lights will come on, believe de facto in higher uranium prices. And I, I really think there's a half hour more to talk about, but that probably uh, covers the basics pretty well. Amir, I have a question about the price. Now, I spoke to a silver and gold miner recently and I asked him a hypothetical question of what would happen to gold and silver prices should all the precious miners, precious metals miners around the world cease production spontaneously for just as a hypothetical example. And he said the price would inevitably go up. There would be a huge supply crunch. We're seeing something very similar happen with the uranium market in real life. It's not hypothetical. You told me last last week, you told me that in North America, there's currently no uranium production, but why hasn't the price spiked up yet? One of the, one of the unique characteristics about the uranium market 
is the nature that uh, the role that inventories or secondary supplies play uh, in the market, uh, the availability of them. And the availability of inventories uh, is an important and integral part of the uranium market because the end user for uranium is a nuclear power plant. And a nuclear power plant is responsible in most cases for providing electricity to thousands of homes in uh, high, highly dense uh, areas from a population point of view. So reactor operators and owners typically don't want to wait till last second where there's all of a sudden the need to get uranium for next week and you don't have any. And so naturally there's been stockpiles or inventories built over time. And I think just bringing it back to a point that uh, Rick just made, how today's uh, setup and dynamics in the market are very much reminiscent of periods leading up to previous bull markets where you would have looked around and said to yourself, why isn't the uranium price going up? It's at $20. The supply mm -hmm. demand fundamentals don't make sense. That We're consuming more uranium than what we're mining and we're depending too much on finite amount of above ground inventories. It's the exact same setup. And what has happened in previous circumstances with the same setup is we've seen rapid appreciation in the uranium price where in 2005 we were staring at a $20 uranium price asking ourselves the same question you and I are just talking about and what you just asked David and within two years the uranium price went as high as $140 per pound it's within that time frame when Rick mentioned there were five uranium companies in the world or something like that we, we ended up having 600 uranium companies in the world by 2007 and similarly the run-up in 2010, where the uranium prices were hovering sub $40 per pound and within three short months went to almost $75 per pound. And so in a tightly uh, traded market like uranium, you know, uranium is not listed on the London Metal Exchange. It's not a liquid commodity in terms of the day-to-day -day trading as copper, gold, silver, or oil would be. And so as a result, you can have uh, slower uh, price formation periods. You can have uh, slower reaction, perhaps, to circumstances that you're, you're that we're all looking at and recognize there needs to be a shift higher in price. But then when it goes, it, the moves can be rapid. Uh, and in some cases, uh, one analyst, uh, former analyst, used to famously say the moves can be violent. Uh, and, and I think uh, we've seen that already in the last 15 years with the uranium market. Okay. Rick, uh, you're an investor. I'd like to ask you, from the perspective of an investor, when you see a commodity like uranium, and let's just take the last six months, for example, the price has steadily fallen, yet if you look at particularly uranium stocks, like UEC, for example, um, Amir's company, the stock has steadily risen. When you see a divergence um, that is that significant, what are some of the first questions you have that come to your mind? I understand the question, but I have to digress a little bit. Uh, there isn't a price in uranium. The, the price that you see quoted as the spot price, which is to say the price that uranium, which hasn't been contracted, trades at. And, and that can be between 20 and 30% of the total uranium. Most uranium transactions take place in the contractor term market. And what you've seen in the last three or four months has been that the term market, uh, although it's opaque, has firmed substantially. You aren't seeing a move up in the spot market, I suggest largely because of the very slow pace of Japanese restarts after Fukushima. There is still ample material around in the very near term. But as reactors begin to contract for the four or five or six year time frame, 
that market is becoming substantially tighter. It's that tightness that I think has caused the uranium equities to go up in price. Okay. Let's uh, turn the page, gentlemen, now to the broader investment landscape. And Rick, I'll start with you and talk about specifically the resource sector and how the resource sector fits into a generalist investor's portfolio. How should one look at the resource sector? Is it a value play? Is it a speculative play? Is it something of a hedge? How should someone utilize the sector? Wonderful lead. I just get to say, yes, it's a value play. <laughs> it's a speculative play and it's a hedge. I think it's important for people to step back a second and recognize that everything in the world that's tangible was either grown or mined. Uh, we beneficiate things as human beings, but to the extent that we have anything tangible at all, it comes out of the ground. We grow it and mine it. It's also necessary to understand in terms of commodity plays that they are very capital intensive and extremely cyclical. What that means is that investors, even before the, they categorize themselves, uh, have to understand that they are either contrarians, they have to buy uh, commodity sectors when they're out of favor, or they're going to become victims. Uh, commodities are extremely economically sensitive, and the increase that we have seen in commodities-related equities in the last six months comes from what Wall Street is calling the reflation trade. Mm -hmm. uh, Wall Street is looking for fairly benign uh, economic circumstances, but they are looking for increased inflation, which traditionally has treated uh, industrial commodities uh, fairly well. Your listeners need to ask themselves when they are looking at the non-precious metals side of commodities whether or not they think the next two or three years will exhibit good economic conditions. If they do, the reflation trade will continue because as a society, we have underinvested under in the means of production associated with in particular mineral commodities for a very long time. And if demand even holds steady, it doesn't need to increase, we're going to see supply destruction occurring because of a period of very low uh, input. That is, we've underinvested in these sectors. Uh, if you believe that we're going to have an economic decline in the next two or three years, which some people do, that should constrain price increases in non-industrial commodities, uh, pardon me, in non-precious metals commodities. I think with regards to precious metals, the circumstance is very different. I think there, uh, what investors need to look at is whether the uh, fiscal policy decisions, specifically quantitative easing, uh, which, as we said before, David, if you did it, would be called counterfeiting. Yes. Uh, debt and deficits and negative real interest rates will persist. If those conditions persist, I think that precious metals will do very well, irrespective of any other economic conditions. If you believe, by contrast, that economic growth will uh, begin to outpace the U.S. budget deficit, uh, if you believe that the current rise in interest rates will take interest rates positive in real terms, then you need to be cautious about precious metals. Mm -hmm. For myself, uh, I believe that we are in a precious metals bull market uh, that is being driven by negative real interest rates on other savings products. Uh, I believe, too, that the plateauing and the decline that we've seen in the gold price is really a function of the increase in the nominal interest rate in the United States. And I have difficulty believing that that nominal rate increase will continue. Uh, I, in fact, believe it will decline. So I believe that we're going to resume the upward march uh, at some point in time, three months from now, six months from now, in precious metals and precious metals equities. With regards to the broader commodity trade, I think the print is a little bit overdone right now. 
the idea that the whole range of commodities is up by 50 or 60 percent uh, seems to me a little excessive. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. I believe four or five years from now that real commodity prices are much higher, not so much as a consequence of increased uh, demand, but rather as a consequence of supply shortages throughout the chain. Hope that answers the question. Okay. Uh, Amir, uh, I'll let you respond to that, but I also have um, a more hypothetical scenario for you to address. This is not a short-term problem, obviously, but uh, I've heard that the reserves on, on, on the planet are dwindling for, for, for precious metals in particular. Down the line, I'm talking about perhaps the next generation or perhaps even the fo following one, will we ever reach a point where we're running out of gold in the ground and silver and there's none left on Earth? What would happen then? Well, I think one of the areas uh, of peak gold discussion uh, was uh, famously discussed uh, by individuals uh, like Ian Telfer, who has recently partnered up, partnered with uh, Rick Rule and I on a on a new gold royalty IPO that that we launched and it completed last week. And you know, Ian is a former chairman of the World Gold Council, so he had a pretty uh, uh, interesting and informed uh, vantage point into uh, the challenges associated with uh, uh, mining and reserves and resources. Let's step back. There's no doubt about it, and you can simply reference uh, the most recent presentation made by uh, CEO Barrett Gold, Mark Bristow, uh, confirming the fact that reserves and resources for major gold producers are at a decade low. Um, this is a fact. Now, whether this is due to um, the, the sheer scarcity uh, of gold in the Earth's crust or the fact that investors uh, require and ESG practices require deposits in certain jurisdictions uh, or whether we're talking about sanctions or other political issues as to what geographies and countries miners can and can efficiently enter into, bring their capital and be able over a long-term business realize adequate returns, uh, we end up with uh, quite limiting uh, areas and limitations around where exploration, development, and mining can take place, which is an extremely long-term business and exercise, extremely high risk and extremely capital intensive. And again, sometimes it, it really is difficult to treat availability of the mineral endowments throughout the world equally without factoring in all those geopolitical and other considerations that affect uh, capital allocation decisions by mining companies. So there's no doubt that we were in a long bear market before entering this new bull market, which meant underinvestment in exploration and development. Major producers were deleveraging their balance sheets rather than investing in growth. Uh, and today, as we uh, enter a new phase of uh, seeking growth and needing to replace uh, reserves and, and depletion, uh, we're, uh, we're faced with uh, all types of structural issues uh, permitting takes longer, uh, all, all kinds of complications, I think, around uh, uh, what uh, I think the latest McKenzie study showed that you're looking at 10 to 12 years to permit new uh, uh, gold and gold and copper related projects to bring into production. So uh, to Rick's point, I think irrespective of what economic conditions or fiscal policy decisions have landed us in this environment of elevated mm -hmm. uh, commodity prices, the realities of what it takes to build new mines anywhere in the world, be it gold, be it copper, be it uranium, uh, simply translate to longer timelines uh, and uh, the, the need for a higher return 
And hence, I think it supports why we're going to see higher commodity prices as, uh, as it relates to the economic realities of mining. Okay, I have one final question for both of you, and this relates to price. Now, I, it's, it's great that we have both of you on because, Rick, uh, you can comment on this from the perspective of an investor while Amir can comment on this from the perspective of a miner, a producer. So opposite sides of the same coin, as I like to call it. Uh, Rick, let's start with you. The price of gold. Now, you, as you said, we are still in a long-term uh, secular bull market. However, undeniably, the, the trend for gold has been has been bearish for the last couple of months. Sentiment is weaker now than when we first spoke last summer, you and I. And so as an investor, when you're seeing this happen, would you prefer to stay on the sidelines until sentiment improves, or would you prefer to buy on the weakness? No, I'm <laughs> putting it very crassly. Uh, I'd like to become wealthier. <laughs> if I believe that the price of gold is going up in the two-year, three-year, four-year time frame, the fact that it uh, is falling in price now so that I can buy more cheaply, uh, I consider to be an unalloyed good. Uh, the fact that for some reason uh, investors seem to favor receiving a negative real interest rate, which is to say a guaranteed loss on their U.S. dollar-denominated gold holdings, oh, pardon me, U.S. dollar-denominated bond holdings, uh, I, I think is an irrational act. Uh, but as long as they're willing to do it, uh, as long as they're uh, willing to sell me at a bargain uh, a commodity where I think the price is going to go up, I'm completely unconcerned with sentiment. Uh, I, I'm delighted by it. Uh, the truth is that uh, my physical gold holdings, the physical gold holdings I have now, wouldn't be for sale at $2,000 an ounce. They wouldn't be for sale at $2,200 an ounce. So from its current price, I would actually rather see it go down than up. Uh, if it goes down, I can buy more. If it went up, uh, even a reasonable amount, I wouldn't sell it uh, anyway. So from my own viewpoint, the current weakness in gold, and particularly the current weakness in gold equities, is extremely appealing. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd like to go back for a second to something Amir said with regards to supply. And I would caution your listeners to understand that almost all the gold that's ever been mined is still supply. We take the stuff oddly from a hole in the ground called a mine, and we put it in a hole in the ground called a vault. Uh, but despite the fact that it's all supply, you have to consider its supply relative to its competitors, which is to say bonds. Uh, Amir needs to go out and find the stuff. He needs to permit it. He needs to finance it. He needs to do all that. To create gold, he has to make a, f a substantial expenditure. For the government to create bonds or dollars, all they have to do is click a mouse. The... Uh, Market share of gold and, well, precious metals and precious metals-related assets in the U.S. market is less than one-half of 1%, 1 which is to say one-half of 1%, a little less than one-half of 1% of all the savings and investment assets in the United States of America are in precious metals and precious metals-related assets. It's a tiny class. The three-decade median, or pardon me, three-decade mean is between one and a half and 2%. So if sentiment would improve well enough, uh, not that the gold has to win the war against the U.S. dollar, but rather if the sentiment was to return to the three-decade mean, demand for precious metals and precious metals-related assets in the largest savings and investment market in the world would somewhere between triple and quadruple. And that's precisely what I think is going to happen. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and Rick, I'll let you finish uh, your part of this uh, segment and then we'll move on to Amir. 
to close off. So Rick, uh, I know that Spot has uh, a service that they provide to viewers uh, and you rank their uh, portfolios. Can you walk us very briefly the criteria? We've spoken about this before, but I think we omitted the criteria part. What do you look for when you rank someone's portfolio? First of all, can that's you describe a, the service and then talk about the criteria? A, that's a very long discussion. Uh, I, I can only say that in smaller companies, it revolves to some measure around people. But what we're really trying to do is uh, establish a risk-adjusted net present value and compare that with its existing uh, enterprise value. Uh, look at probabilities, look at political risk, look at balance sheet risk. We're looking at companies very much from a quantitative and qualitative point of view. We rank the companies one to 10, one being most attractive, 10 being least, least attractive. And I personally comment on individual issues where I think my uh, comments might have value. This service is accessed uh, on a website, sproutusa.com forward slash rankings. Uh, you can enter all of your natural resource stocks there. By the way, please no cannabis stocks. Uh, please no technology stocks. Please think no, nothing that I don't understand. Uh, no obligations basis. I will send you back your stocks ranked 1 to 10. And as I say, I'll com comment on individual issues uh, where I think it's appropriate. It's important to note, too, that the rankings take in all of the intellectual capital but uh, of Sprott, pardon me, but the bow and the blame, uh, that is, the one who makes the rankings and makes the comments, is me. All right, Amir, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you comment on that. In regards to the price of gold and in relation to your company, do you think your stock's out of favor right now? Well, I think you got to take a long-term view with, uh, with this, at least I do. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I'm, I've, I'm taking a very long-term view. I look at um, uh, Uranium Energy, as I mentioned. Uh, I started that company 15 years ago, and uh, in the case of gold mining, over a decade ago. And so your expectation for return on your own time and capital invested is uh, quite different than maybe someone who's got a shorter-term shorter view. So from my perspective, as the largest individual shareholder and all the companies I'm directly involved with, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm doing this and my team and other long-term backers expect uh, significantly higher outcomes uh, for, for what we have created, or at least the intrinsic value that we've created. I think longer term will command much higher market value, mainly due to the fact that, again, um, at the end of the day, uranium is still out of favor. Uh, uh, because of the low uranium price, irrespective of uh, some better equity performances we've enjoyed over the last uh, few months. Uh, this is nothing compared to the fact that if we actually have a uranium price where uranium companies with fully permitted assets like UEC can produce and, and, and generate revenue and generate free cash flow, that will be a very different market valuation for a company being able to do that uh, than, uh, than sitting and, and simply waiting for that to happen, which uh, to some extent, we have to do, despite the fact that we're aggressively drilling and developing and preparing our production capabilities, making acquisitions. I think we will be a much better placed company with higher value recognized in the market once we can uh, see a higher uranium price and fully harvest at that point with production. And uh, same with gold mining. And, you know, we, uh, we've entered a bull market for gold and we've seen uh, and, and marked improvements in uh, the valuation there, but we still have ways to go. Uh, as you, met, you heard me say already, we, we had an exciting value unlocking event uh, just recently for gold mining, where we uh, spun out a portfolio of royalties on our assets and uh, realized a very successful IPO outcome where 
the company that was our former subsidiary, Gold Royalty Corp, is now a company uh, listed on an NYC American with $90 million of cash. Uh, and our company, Gold Mining, owns half of that business with, with almost 200 million market cap. So, uh, but, but you got to plan long term for this. And I think longer term, there's going to be tremendous demand for gold. There's going to be tremendous demand for uranium for different reasons. I love the two yellow metals. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. Uh, I've been a big investor personally in the companies that I'm directly involved with. Uh, and I think if you have that approach, you will be rewarded in the long term. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. Best of luck, Amir, to your uh, to your projects. And Rick, I hope to follow up with you again soon. I hope you're not into retirement, right? You've stepped down, but you're still you haven't you haven't uh, you haven't taken um, taken time off work. I hope investors want to know want to know more from you. I think I'll be much more useful to you in the future. Uh, Sprott has had reasonable constraints on me from a regulatory point of view because we're a regulated business. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm out from under those restrictions now. So the Rick rule that you interview a month from now will be very different than the Rick rule that you interviewed three months ago. And I think that your listeners will enjoy it more. Uh, and the regulators won't have any particular say. So I'll enjoy it more, too. Rick Retirement, no, that would kill me. Yeah, that would be uh, that that would be that would be quite a show. Amir, I look forward to following up with you again soon. Thank you Thank both you. for coming on the show and uh, best of luck to you again. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. And thank you for watching Kiko News. I'm David Lynn. 